All right, if you want to turn with me, turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. In honor of Mother's Day, we're going to be speaking on an incredible woman from the Scriptures, uh, from the Old Testament, from Joshua, uh, one who is an example of faith to all of us. Uh, Actually, in Hebrews 11, in the great faith chapter. You know, it's always fun to boast about our family's lineage, our ancestors sometimes, isn't it? I mean, many of us, I think, have done at least somewhat uh, uh, some kind of search of our family tree to kind of find out the interesting people who preceded us. Anybody ever do that? Yeah. Uh, I haven't particularly, thank you. I haven't particularly done much work in it, but... Uh, maybe we'll find some of our ancestors were nobility back in the day, kings and queens, princes and princesses many years ago. You know, I recently had a DNA test, and it turns out from this DNA test that one of my ancestors, one of the people I was uh, related to, was King Louis XVI of France. You know who he was? Right? The king, the king of France who was beheaded during the French Revolution, uh, married to uh, Marie Antoinette. Now, not, not to be outdone, Rachel took a DNA test, and this DNA test claimed that she was related to Luke from the Bible. Now, how do you know that? How do you get Luke's DNA, right? Well, they have these bones uh, that they claim uh, were, were, that were buried that were Luke's that they, I guess they dug up and now they have on display somewhere. Uh, for these many hundreds of years now, and they took DNA from these bones that were supposed to be the bones of Luke, and Rachel is related to these bones, whether it, not, whether it be, the, whether it be the, uh, the, uh, the, the Luke, the writer of these uh, couple of the books of the Bible or not, who knows. Uh, many of you maybe can trace your lineage back to the early convicts, and that's always fascinating. Now, I've not particularly done a trace of my family tree, uh, you know, seeing where each ancestor came from and where they ended up and uh, why they are where they are today, but, uh, you know, I've never taken that opportunity, but Rachel's family has done a little bit of that, and it's been revealed uh, something really interesting about her family name. Uh, You see, her maiden name is Brown, kind of a common name. Uh, particularly in the U.S., but that name was actually traced back to her great-great-grandfather, a Scottish man uh, by the name of Marion Donaldson. And Marion Donaldson one day decided he wanted to join the U.S. military. And the only problem was that he was 16 years old, a little too young to join the military. Uh, so to get around this, he had to come up with a false name. And so what he did is he took the surname of the governor of Tennessee at the time, who was a Governor Brown. And so he changed his name from Donaldson to Brown. And uh, that's uh, from that point on, uh, that was Rachel's family's surname. Interesting stuff. In light of that, it's interesting to kind of look at the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, if you would. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to just briefly look at it here. Of course, Jesus had all sorts of famous and illustrious ancestors. 
And if you look at that passage, I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but if you look at Matthew chapter 1, you scan through it, you'll see names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see King David. You see King Solomon and many other names that we recognize. And these are just the kinds of names we would expect to find in the ancestry of the king of the Jews. But there are some surprising names there as well. Uh, For a start, there are some women mentioned in these genealogies, which surprisingly, uh, well, it is surprising given the time that this book was written. In the light of this, uh, who are these women? Who are these women that are mentioned? Well, working backwards from verse 16, of course, there's Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, of course. And then uh, if you go back to verse 6, even if she's not even mentioned particularly by name, there's Bathsheba, and we read about her even uh, this morning, uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who bore Solomon to David. So wait a minute there, wait a minute, already we have a frank admission that Jesus' ancestry includes an adulterous relationship. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Before that, in verse 5, there was Ruth. Well, she's okay, at least. Uh, But just before that, we come to Rahab, whom we'll be hearing about today. Now, what do we really know about the woman Rahab? Uh, Without giving too much away here, uh, we'll get into it. But what we get from Scripture is Rahab had a very unusual profession. In fact, what we learn is that Rahab was actually a prostitute from a Canaanite city of Jericho in Joshua's time. So, again, here we have recorded in black and white on the pages of Scripture that Rahab, a pagan prostitute from a heathen people, was one of the ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how did that get through the editors? Right? I mean, I wouldn't put it in there, uh, but it's in there. Uh, That makes this story pretty intriguing, doesn't it? Well, let's find out how this extraordinary situation came about. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. And uh, believe it or not, we're going to be there very briefly here. Because we're going to be turning around a little bit before we settle down into our chapter. Now, I have four simple points that I really want to... um, to get across to you. That's why the outline is fairly blank, except for four very simple points as we go through Joshua chapter 2. Now, as we come to the passage here, as we come to Joshua chapter 2 this morning, I'd like to kind of set the context. Okay, Moses has just recently died, and we can find out that from Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1. And Joshua has been left in charge of God's people. Now, before this, through God's power, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of the slavery that they were in for many, many years. Now they were finally to the point where they were going to take possession of the land of Canaan. Now, during that time, there were some glorious moments, right? Think about this. Think about the wonderful crossing at the Red Sea and the miracle that God performed there. Think of the things that happened at Mount, Mount Sinai as God was giving the law to his people. And, of course, there were some negative things there, weren't there? 
uh, there were some pretty costly failures uh, along the way. Uh, the one that cost them 40 years was when, they, uh, when the 12 spies were sent out into the land of Canaan. Only two of them came back with a positive report. Ten of them came back with a bad report saying, oh, no, we can't take possession of the land of Canaan. And who did they listen to? They listened to those 10 spies that gave the negative report. They listened to those other 10, and they were forced to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years. And now they're back at the edge of Canaan, ready to go in. We're coming to this passage regarding Rahab and the spies. And if you have a Bible that has headings, you probably read that heading, and mine says, mine particularly, my Bible says, Rahab hides the spies. That's, how, that's what it's entitled as. That's the heading. As we come to this passage, we see a true story of faith, solid faith, but it comes from a very unexpected source when you talk about Rahab. So to begin with, I think it's important uh, to note the strength of Rahab's faith as mentioned in the New Testament. So if you want to put your finger there, put a bookmark in there, whatever, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, where Rahab is actually mentioned. Hebrews chapter 11. We won't spend much time here, but I wanted to make sure you saw these things uh, in chapter 11, first of all. As you may know, Hebrews chapter 11 is what many refer to as the hall of faith or the great faith chapter, that, uh, people may call it. And we, as we see, Rahab makes the Hebrews 11 hall of faith. And it's interesting to see her mentioned alongside other great men of the faith. Uh, and uh, you see here in verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 11, you see the phrase, it starts out here, by faith, verse 31, by faith, Rahab, uh, the harlot Rahab, did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Now, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about faith. There's belief. There's faith here with Rahab. Now, turn with me over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. That's the other passage I want to look at that mentions Rahab. And we're going to look at verse 25 of James chapter 2. All right. Verse 25 of James chapter 2. James says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Now, in this verse, Rahab's example is used really to support James's argument that faith must result in action. It must result in action if it is indeed true faith. True faith results in uh, works, in true actions. And he uses Rahab as an example of that kind of faith. So Rahab, uh, as we'll see in Joshua chapter 2, if you want to turn back there to Joshua chapter 2 now, Rahab believed the Lord, and she put her faith into action. And that is a key thing. She risked her own life in doing so, as we'll see. Now, let's, let's look at uh, Joshua chapter 2 and proceed with our outline now. First of all, our first point, Roman, number, uh, Roman numeral number one, and is found in verse one of Joshua chapter two. Roman numeral number one, we see faith pursued. 
faith pursued. Now let's read verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy, out, uh, to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, as can be seen throughout the book of Joshua, uh, and, and we've seen it very, uh, we will see it very clearly if we read Joshua chapter one. Joshua himself is a strong man of faith. He's a strong man of faith, and we know this uh, that this spy mission was not the first spy mission for Joshua. In fact, Joshua was one of those ten spies, twelve spies that was sent out. Uh, to spy the land of Canaan the first time. And he was one of those spies that came back with a good report. He says, we can do it. We can take this land. So he was one of the two good spies. He, now, he was going to make sure that this time it was not going to be, it was not, not going to go the way it previously went. It was not going to be discouragement here uh, the way it previously was on that previous spy mission. So he was going to make sure that this was not going to be anything like that. He, he wasn't ready for another 40 years to go by before they could uh, enter the land of Canaan. So he was going to make sure that this was going according to the, uh, to the Lord's will. So Joshua would see to it that this would be a secret. He sent the men out secretly, uh, not only in terms of the spies going in, but also a secret, I think, from the nation of Israel themselves. He didn't even tell them as a whole. Uh, that they would go into this mission. So he, he wanted to make sure that no matter what the report these two men brought back, uh, even if they brought back a bad report, it would not adversely affect uh, what they were going to do or discourage the hearts of the children of Israel as it did the first time. So secretly, he sends them out, and they would not be deterred this time. Uh, clearly, we see the Lord blessed this mission uh, this is much different than the first mission. And as we see, faith is all over this mission. Uh, the spies were sent out by the man of faith, the hand-picked leader of the Israelites at this time. And notice it wasn't Moses who picked Joshua to succeed him, but it was the Lord. It was God who picked Joshua uh, in Moses' place because Joshua uh, was this man of faith. And the spies themselves were men of faith and integrity, as we'll see in this passage as well. Uh, and the hostess for the spies, Rahab, turned out to be a woman of great faith herself. So all over this passage, there is this concept of faith. Now, even though her background is a little bit unusual, of course, we know what she was. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. In fact, nearly every mention of her in the Scriptures mentions this, uh, both in the Old and the New Testaments. It points this out very clearly. God in His Word never tries to conceal that fact. In fact, He seems to make a special point in mentioning it every time uh, we hear uh, Rahab mentioned. And, the, uh, and there's probably a reason for this. There are probably, I think there are probably two questions that pop into our minds when we think of uh, God's using Rahab. Number one, the first question is probably this. How could God use a prostitute to accomplish his purposes? How could he use her? And the second question may be even more pertinent. Why would God use a prostitute in this particular situation? Why would he? Well, maybe it's a lesson for all of us. Maybe it's a lesson for us that to, to remember that, you know what, God can cleanse 
And God can forgive anyone, no matter what their background, no matter what they've done previously in their life. But not only that, God can use that person for his plan and purposes. So, not only can that person be saved, no matter what their background, but then God is willing to use that person to make a major impact for him in this world. You know what? That happens even today. Let's face it, we've all started out as broken vessels, haven't we? Needing to be made new. And praise the Lord that Rahab was saved by grace through faith. Even a harlot is well within God's hand of mercy. And we should never forget that. Fact is that the spies came to Rahab's house. Uh, well, it may have seemed like coincidence. Or just maybe some lucky break. Rahab. But as we know, the word luck never be used in terms of, uh, of a Christian's uh, description of how God works. Right, should never be in our vocabulary. We know God never works. Uh, he never operates in, in that way in terms of lucky chances or breaks or coincidences. God doesn't work that way. The two spies were led by God's divine hand to just the right place at just the right time to do God's work to just the right person. So it's faith pursued in verse 1. Now let's look at verses 2 through 7. And we'll see Roman numeral number two, faith demonstrated. Faith demonstrated. Verses two through seven, we'll read. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being set, shut, uh, when, it was when it was dark, that the men went out. Uh, where, where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for, they, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax. She had laid an order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, it would have been very easy for Rahab, when those two spies came, to just say, hey, listen, you guys get out of here. I know you're trouble. This is too dangerous. You foreigners, you just leave this place. Go, go away. And then she could have just kind of washed her hands of the whole situation, of the whole ordeal. That would have been the easy road to take for her. But as we'll see in this next section, especially, uh, Rahab couldn't do that because of the faith that God had put in her heart. Rahab took action, so she hid the men. That's why we say faith demonstrated. She took action. She hid the men, and she tricked the guards to go off to, on some sort of uh, wild goose chase. Now, I'm going to address this very briefly. I'm not going uh, to labor this point, but we come to, you know, as many scholars would acknowledge at this point, a dilemma of some sort. 
since Rahab told a lie, why did God seem to bless Rahab for her lie? Well, let me say this. The point of this passage and the point of Hebrews chapter 11 and the point of James chapter 2 is to point out the faith that Rahab demonstrated, uh, not to pass judgment on her lie. That's not the purpose of the passage. All right, with that said, let me give you three quotes on this subject, just for your consideration. Uh, the first quote is from a professor and author by the name of Donald Campbell. And he says this, was Rahab wrong to lie since her falsehood protected the spies? Are there some situations in which a lie is acceptable? After all, some say it, this was a cultural matter for Rahab was born and raised among a depraved, the depraved Can Canaanites, among whom lying was universally practiced. She probably saw no evil in her act. Further, if she had told the truth, the spies would have, uh, would have been killed by the king of Jericho. But such arguments are not convincing. To argue that the spies would certainly have perished if Rahab had been truthful is to ignore the option that God could have protected the spies in some other way. To excuse Rahab for indulging in a common practice is to condone what God condemns. The lie of Rahab was recorded, not approved. The Bible approved her faith, demonstrated by her works, but not her falsehood. Let me give you another quote by none other, some, somebody that you know well. Uh, John MacArthur. John MacArthur says this, Lying is sin to God, for he cannot lie. God commended her faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and James chapter 2 and verse 25, as expressed in verses 9 through 16, not her lie. He never, condemns, uh, he never condones any sin, yet none are without some sin, Romans 3.23, thus the need for forgiveness. But he also honors true faith, small as it is, and imparts saving grace. And the last quote is from a very common commentary uh, from Jameson Fawcett Brown. It's very short, and it's very to the point. It basically agrees with the previous two. It says this, Judged by the divine law, her answer was a sinful expedient, but her infirmity being united with faith, she was graciously pardoned and her service accepted. So the bottom line is this, God in his mercy saw Rahab's heart of faith. This does not excuse the lie, and we should never take this uh, and say, well, Look at what Rahab did. Now, we can tell a lie if it, if it achieves a certain goal. No, we can't. That's not what the Bible is teaching here. The Bible is trying to give us a lesson here on faith. Okay, Roman numeral number three. We have faith explained. Faith explained. That's found in verses 8 through 13. Let's look particularly right now at verses 8 through 11. Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11. Now, before they lay down, he came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, or what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. 
whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now we'll pause there for a minute. You see how this is contrasted with the courage that you'll find in Joshua, uh, the, with the courage that you'll find in Joshua chapter 1. The lesson, I think, is this. When you don't have God, when you worship false gods, when you're not on God's side, there is no courage there. Joshua was on God's side. God's, God told him, don't be afraid. Be of good courage. He had God. He could be courageous, but they're not. They don't have God. Now look at verses 12 and 13. Now therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So we see faith pursued. We see faith demonstrated, and now we see faith explained. We now have a bit more information as to why Rahab chose to do what she did. Rahab saw the wonders of the Lord. She witnessed some things. She heard some things about what God had done, the mighty works that God had done. She must have had plenty of reports given to her on what uh, was going on with God's people. And her heart melted, as well as the hearts of many of the people there in that Canaanite city. But sometimes a heart melting can melt for different reasons and with different results. We can't speak for the other people of Jericho as to where they were at, but we know about Rahab. She no longer trusted in false gods. She no longer trusted in her own abilities. She decided to follow the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the one true God. In fact, Rahab must have had some prior knowledge of the Lord because several times in this passage you see her quoting here. Uh, when she's quoted, she uses God's personal covenant name, Jehovah or Yahweh. This name is written in your English Bibles as the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Four times he mentions this name in this section of Scripture. You hear her use that covenant name of God. So she had some knowledge of God. We don't actually know where that came from, but it was there. She had some knowledge. And in application, I think we must remember that faith in one's heart doesn't wait for that person to be perfect. It doesn't wait for that person to be perfect. You know what? Faith comes to faith comes to imperfect people. I know it's a very simple point, but it's something that we need to be reminded of uh, in our own lives, let alone when we go out to witness and to evangelize to others around us. We must not pick and choose and say, well, that person, well, they're pretty far out there. They're not going to accept Christ. We, we, we'll just ignore them. We'll leave them alone. No one, listen, no one is beyond God's reach. 
Right? It's not a waste of our time. God does not wait for perfection. That's not scriptural. God saves sinners. God comes to sinners. He imparts faith to sinners, all kinds of sinners. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive in faith. I'm going to quote Campbell one more time in his commentary because he makes a good point here. He asks a very important question regarding this line of thought. He says, but how could Rahab have such a remarkable faith and still be a harlot and glibly tell lies? Well, the answer would seem to be that as she responded in belief to the message she heard about God's work, she later responded to further messages concerning God's standard of life and obeyed. After all, spiritual maturity is gradual, not instantaneous. Even John Newton, who wrote the gospel song Amazing Grace, continued for some time after his conversion in the slave trade before he was convicted about this base and degrading practice and gave it up. We can thank the Lord that God accepts us and he saves us all stained with sin. I'm not saying that transformation doesn't occur when we get saved, when we put our faith and trust in Christ. It does. There is a transformation that occurs immediately. Obviously, when God regenerates a heart, there is a transformation that takes place. But the maturity oftentimes does not take place immediately. That's a progressive thing. That's, that's a thing that as we, as we learn more about God, as we learn more about His Word, as we apply it into our lives, He molds us and shapes us more and more into His image day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And it's a process that it takes of maturity. You know what? If we really want to admit it, and I'll admit it in my life, God is still making uh, His Word impact my life and maturing me and still making me more and more like Christ. I need it. I'm not there yet. <laughs> or you could say amen to you about yourself. How's that? Obviously, when God regenerates a heart, there's that transformation, but there is a process also of sanctification that he brings into our lives. You know, we can cite many examples in Scripture, and of course we can look into our own lives and see that maturity takes some time. So we're all on that track of becoming more and more like Christ. Now if we're to look back, if we were to look back at Matthew chapter 1, we're not going to turn there. I think it'll be up on the screen though. If we were to look back, we'll notice an incredible transformation that takes place. When it comes to Rahab, Rahab the prostitute is completely changed. We don't know all the details, but apparently God accepted Rahab very clearly into his chosen people. She ended up marrying an Israelite and, uh, and ended up being part of the line that produced Boaz and David and even led up to Joseph, the earthly father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is what faith does to people. Their old life, their old ways, 
vanish away. They pass away. They disappear. And the new life in the Lord takes off. That relationship spurs them on to good works. The fact is that through faith, people are changed. And prostitutes like Rahab are changed. People like us, we remember our background. When we remember what God took us from and how far he's taken us since then, we can acknowledge that fact, that God can do miracles in people's lives. Every one of us who's been saved, that's a miracle. A miracle of God's grace. But sometimes when you see people who are in such a state of moral depravity and are changed like that, it helps to remind us of what the Lord can do and what He's done for us. All right, let's move on to our fourth and final point. Verses 14 through 24, we see faith rewarded. Faith rewarded, Roman numeral number four. Now look particularly at two verses, verses 17 and 18. And don't you just love these verses? So the, uh, verse 17, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which uh, you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of garlic cord in the window through which you let us down. That's, sound familiar? This kind of reminds you of a, a, another event that happened way back in the book of Exodus in the land of Egypt. Right? The nation of Israel were still slaves in Egypt, and the Lord was ready to, to send his angel into the land to kill the firstborn of every Egyptian family. God tells the Israelites they'll be saved from this destruction if they kill a lamb and they sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the doorposts uh, 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 of their houses. And this time, well, instead of blood, it's a scarlet cord. And instead of a doorpost, it's a window. But it all paints the same beautiful, wonderful picture of salvation. The scarlet cord can be seen as a type of Christ's death and his blood, which he shed to save us. The family there, they gather in the house, and they, uh, the, the father and the mother and the brothers and the sisters, and you can see this as a type or a picture of being safe. In Christ. If we are in Christ, we are under the blood of Christ, then we're safe, we're secure, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. What a wonderful picture is this, this is, an Old Testament type of what Christ has done for us. When faith is real, when faith is acted upon, our reward is certain. We will be safe in Christ Jesus. We will have eternal life. Most of all, uh, I think uh, most all of you know John 3.16. This verse kind of fits just, really fits perfectly here. John 3.16 reads this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed... But what are we talking about today? We're talking about the faith of Rahab. Whoever. Rahab. Whoever. Us. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
You think about that verse with Rahab there in this house by the wall, this wall that's very soon to come tumbling down. It makes you think about being safe and secure in our Lord Jesus. Even though the world is in this terrible situation right now, doesn't look like there's any way out of it, and judgment is coming upon the world soon. Heard about that last week from the book of Revelation. How soon? We don't know. But the Lord could come back at any time. And you know that if you are in Christ, you are secure, you are safe. You are under the blood of Christ. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. You can be confident in Christ. Rahab? We still think of Rahab as a prostitute? Well, that title is still with her in the New Testament as we read those passages. And it seems like God takes pains to remind us of that, of this woman's past. He doesn't want us to forget about it, but it isn't meant to be derogatory. It was there basically to show what the Lord has saved her from and how much a change he had made in her life as a result of her. I think now... I think now we think of Rahab, when we think of her, we don't think of her in that way. We think of her as a woman of faith. We think of her as a trophy. That's great. All of you who put your faith and trust. Trophies. Of Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your work. Thank you for the faith that you are in our hearts. Thank you for a Savior shed his blood for us. You see these pictures throughout the, throughout the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament, pictures of your shed blood and the, the, the safety we have in you, the security we have in you, eternal security a relationship with God, a home in heaven because of what you've done for us. Lord, would you increase our faith? Lord, would you remind us even uh, today of a time when we were lost, we were sinners, we were without God, we were rebellious. And yet, Lord, your grace shined into our lives and you brought us faith. You made us your children. And Lord, uh, we can look back and we can see what we were compared to what we are now, children of God. We can look at how far you've taken us in, in spiritual maturity. And we can give you thanks for all of that. We give you the honor and the praise and the credit for all of it. So Lord, bless our day. May we be able to go out and to share that good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our life to those that we come across even this week. Lord, bless your word to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.